Hey everybody, this is Michael Magnanti. I am the producer and editor of the Who Isn't Fucking Crazy podcast, and I'm recording this little intro just to explain the hiatus of the show. In addition to being the producer and editor of Who Isn't Fucking Crazy, I was also the director of ticket sales for the Wilmington Sharks baseball team. That was a full-time position. My first full-time position coming out of college and it proved to be a little bit too much for me. So unfortunately, I had to prioritize my full-time job as opposed to editing the podcast and posting the podcast. So that is why the show has been on a bit of a hiatus. I apologize to the fans, and I apologize to Doug and Stacy for the inconvenience. However, I appreciate everyone's patience and loyalty, as do Doug and Stacy, and I look forward to seeing the podcast continue to grow. So thank you guys for listening to my little message and enjoy this episode of Who Isn't Fucking Crazy. Welcome to our podcast, Who Isn't Fucking Crazy. He's Doug Engelman, visiting assistant professor in sociology at UNCW. And she is Stacy Colomer, director of the School of Social Work at UNCW. And we are here to answer the question, Who isn't fucking crazy? Hello, I'm very excited today. Uh, We have Ryan Estes, who is Chief of Clinical Innovation and Technology for SAFI, and he used to work at Coastal Horizons. He is the NASW treasurer. He is an extraordinary teacher in the School of Social Work, Um, and in the School of Social Work, we rely on him for a lot. He does a lot of free consultation for for us. So thank you for being here this morning. Welcome. Thank you. Absolutely a pleasure. Oh, and he's a Annie Casey Foundation Fellow. That's right. Which is extraordinarily difficult to get. So uh, the reason why we wanted to speak to you, we we spoke to other social workers and other um, mental health professionals, but one of the areas we really want you to dive deep on is dual diagnoses. Um, and working with clients who are dealing with substance misuse and addictions while also having a serious and persistent mental illness. Um, But let's start. Let's try and get to know you a little bit better. Tell us why you became a social worker. Well, you hit the highlights. Uh, So I took a job uh, doing wilderness therapy. I, I knew I wanted to do something in the helping professional or nonprofit, and uh, working for Ecker Youth Alternatives, working with juvenile kids that had been um, essentially incarcerated in a wilderness therapy rehabilitation program, but I think incarcerated is really the right word because it lacked the true therapeutic elements. Mm-hmm. Um, it was where I really started to recognize the inequities in our systems, that why are disproportionately kids of color coming in here? Uh, we don't have uh, therapist on staff, we're not doing medication, so um, it really caused me to wonder what would a better system look like. And around that same time, I had gone to a continuing education um, program thinking I wanted to go back and get my uh, a master's, and probably at that time a master's in psychology, and the uh, 
presenter was a psychiatrist, and he says, you sound like a social worker. <laughs> and I was like, to that point in time, I had all those horrible uh, stereotypes of like, well, no, I don't want to just take children. Um, and so it really uh, was a pivotal moment that shifted my thinking, and that's what led me to go back and get an MSW and you know, kind of the rest of its history from there. Can you tell us very broadly, because I'm sure it's, it's in a uh, very deep history, uh, your, your history and the evolution of your experience in working in the mental health field. Sure. So I did uh, seven years with the, uh, the Wilderness Therapy Program. During that time, I got my master's of social work. Uh, I immediately left there to Coastal Horizons. I was there for 12 years and held various uh, roles. I started as a in-home therapist, and so uh, at that point in time, Coastal Horizons was new to doing family therapy. Uh, we had been asked uh, by the state to say we're seeing a lot of parents that are coming in uh, living with addiction, and we don't have a provider that has that expertise, and so I was asked to start to blend uh, doing home-based therapy um, with families that uh, where one of the parents had uh, substance use. Uh, what ended up happening though is that we just had a really good program, especially uh, when we started it. Uh, myself and the other therapist, uh, she was amazing and we ended up with more referrals than we could handle and so we went from being the new kid on the block to, uh, to this day and age, Coastal Horizons is the largest family uh, provider. Uh, during that time, I had an opportunity to start up, uh, as I moved into operations, uh, infant mental health, uh, families that were more involved with child welfare than mental health system, so 12 years there. And then during that time, I also went back and got my uh, MBA because I was starting to realize I was doing more of the business piece and also just really enjoyed the macro side of social work and really looking at how you set up an organization. Um, which led to my current role as uh, Chief of Clinical Innovation Technology, where I support seven states uh, with new programming using clinical outcomes to really drive uh, our processes improvements. And so that's uh, the current work that I do. Awesome. So diving deep into this issue, tell us from the start of your career, what did it look like working with people who had addiction and mental illness, and where have we come? What are we doing now? So I think probably if we look at the pandemic as a portal, the thing that happened during that time is we started to recognize what happens when there's social isolation and you know there was racial unrest that was finally being uh, reckoned with with the uh, murder of George Floyd. And I think we started to realize that we're, we're chipping away at the stigma that was not um, really being addressed, I think, two years ago. So we started to allow individuals to access therapy in a virtual component that happened very differently uh, during the pandemic than previously. And so I do think that there's been this proliferation of availability of services that has allowed people to seek out counseling um, differently and I think that we're doing a slightly better job of democratizing that to communities of color as well um, you know, we've started to address things like the ASWB the licensing exam um, pass rates have historically kept out uh, professionals of color disproportionately than their white counterparts and so I just think as a whole we're recognizing that mental health is so much more prevalent than it was 20 years ago uh, it was one of those things when I started my career, 
someone would come in and say, I don't want my family to be aware of this. Be, there was a sense of shame, of guilt. Um, and that hasn't gone away, but it's definitely, I think we're more comfortable talking about it. And I think the other piece that's happening is that there are funds happening, whether it's been ARPA funding or city, local counties, uh, putting in money towards mental health that we didn't see the same way that we did even five years ago. I have a little a tangential question um, related to what you were just talking about. I, we, we were talking in the pre-interview that I'm involved with NAMI as the uh, current board president. And uh, one of the challenges we face, and you kind of touched on how uh, perhaps the stigma of uh, mental health challenges or problems has reduced, but the fact that uh, we find we're not getting people to come to uh, peer sessions, therapy sessions, uh, support group sessions. And I think, it, in my view, a, a lot of it has to do with lack of education. How do you see us doing a better job of educating? And you mentioned communities of color. That is a, a specific problem that we've identified in NAMI Wilmington here. Um, how do you see us doing a better job in educating families um, and individuals? So my initial thought is that we take these very complex issues about people, how do we break down stigma and how do we get people into rooms and we're looking for a technical answer and it's not, it's an, it's an adaptive issue. It's, it's very fractal, there's several little things that we have to do. You know, I think that part of it is education, making sure people are aware of those resources. It's creating this no wrong door approach so that when someone walks in, and they have mental health and substance use that a provider doesn't say, I don't deal with substance use. Because there's a subtlety in that that's very stigmatizing that says, I can handle this, but that's too much. Mm -hmm. um, I think that we have to recognize that parents are grieving um, when their child has a mental health. That what I mean by that is that Families have this picture of what their child's life will look like, and it doesn't include mental health issues. And when that happens, we also have to be able to hold that parent's experience. But we want to do that in a private setting so they're not grieving that loss in front of their child. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of different things that have to be done to get to that point of having uh, people being able to seek out uh, services. I also think that um, you know the opioid epidemic has been a really great example of what happens when the person needing services looks like those of us in the room versus you know people who aren't at this table, and so that when it's a child that is from you know a middle class home and that you know this was a kid that was doing well for a period of time, it's a lot easier to say okay this is hitting a little too close to home, let's get services. And so we've kind of broken down some of those pieces of being able to say, I'm willing to go there and address the fact that my kid has a mental health issue. And then all of a sudden they're starting to realize it's like, not just you do, but the neighbor across the street does. And so all of a sudden it's this tipping point that we've realized that this is much more common than we I think recognized five years ago, we were too silent about it. and so. Those are going to be the pieces that get people coming into the rooms is once they realize that they're not alone. Um, you mentioned parents. 
What about um, others, like siblings? How have you seen, are there a lot of services? What do you think needs to be done as an innovator? Oh, that's a fascinating um, question. So I think one of the biggest issues that we have with uh, family services is this concept of what we call an identified client. And so here's little Johnny. Little Johnny's Medicaid is the one, or their Blue Cross Blue Shield is the one being billed because they have the mental health diagnosis. And oftentimes you'll go into a home and it's like, it's not. It's the family unit that needs services. It's not little Johnny. Little Johnny might be the one that's uh, most problematic or has behaviors that can be labeled more cleanly. And so, if we really want to address family services, we've got to flip on the head how are we allow to pay for services, so that we can come in and truly address that family unit. The other piece of it, too, is there is a sense oftentimes that parents will say, well, I don't have the problem. I need you to come in and take care of my son or my daughter. Um, and really being able to say, that's not an effective approach. We need you at the table. And it's not to say that you're a, we're going to guilt you or shame you or make you feel that you're an adequate parent, that it's, if you really want to make progress, we've got to be able to have everybody, um, including those siblings at the table. Um, far too often what I'll see is 16-year-olds, the one receiving services, they leave the home and guess what, now it's the 14-year-old that moves into uh, those kind of more problematic or identified behaviors. I mean, Stacy is a chair the dean of the school of social work you know these things it's the it's the family unit it's the you can't um families want to keep homeostasis they want to continue to do what they've always done and so when that child that has the more problematic behaviors leaves and the family is going to move on to the next child because there's usually something that's the root issue whether it's marital discord uh, these kind of ghosts in the nurseries of having to deal with their past histories and traumas and the intergenerational traumas until that stuff is addressed you're going to always see it manifest within the children do we have the resources to address those other issues of more maybe complex but also more subtle issues Yes, but not to scale would be my response. Um, I think that we have several barriers. So, you know, I was talking with a, a family today that, uh, you know, their child's experiencing pretty extreme behaviors and is hospitalized. And the challenge there is that they have private insurance. And, you know, many people have private insurance. And so they, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Cigna, they don't pay for these same enhanced services that we see in our Medicaid and state-funded programming. So we're already starting out that there's a sizable population um, that can't get services. And then I think that we also um, pay so poorly in our state and Medicaid programs that once someone has the experience and the understanding of how to handle these complexities in these really extreme cases, that oftentimes they're not financially incentivized to stay within those systems, so they move into doing private practice with uh, individuals that have less complexity. Mm. And so we're always having these really green therapists, the brand new UNCW graduates handling our most complex families. And so uh, until we can address those system level issues, we're not gonna be able to scale uh, what we know works. 
How are we doing addressing those? <laughs> you mentioned the, 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 the macro uh, approach, and uh, that's part of that patchwork, right? So how, what are we doing there? So I wrote a, an article recently that um, one of the statistics in it was that 77% of counties in the country are facing a behavioral health workforce shortage. And I think that that speaks to the fact that we've lost significant grounds during COVID. Um, mm -hmm. Certain things that we've done uh, that I think were well intended and that allowed us to expand access and, you know, at the front of the interview talking about teletherapy and how, you know, it's a lot more comfortable for somebody to seek out those services. Well, it's a supply and uh, demand issue that we have increased the demand as we reduce stigmatization and people seek out services, but we haven't increased the amount of people that say, I want to be a therapist or a helping professional that we end up with a workforce shortage. And so, um, and I was talking with uh, Secretary Dave Richards uh, in a meeting a couple of weeks ago. And this isn't something that started, he's the um, head of Medicaid. And I was like, Dave, this didn't start uh, during COVID. We've been talking about workforce wage issues for 10 years. And so all that ended up happening was that during the, during COVID in this, uh, we have all these other industries like pharmaceutical and Amazon that are poaching uh, therapists because all of a sudden they can say, I'm not gonna make X amount of money, I'm gonna make X amount plus 10, 20 grand by switching industries. All of a sudden we're seeing people who are leaving this field or choosing not to come into it because they just don't want this uh, vow of poverty that I think that has often been associated with being a social worker or being within the helping profession. And so, until we can really change that, we're not going to uh, regain the grounds that we've lost in the last few years. And I was going to ask you about that, the great quit during COVID and, and the impact on mental health professionals. A lot of people are leaving, even private practitioners are leaving their practice. How do we draw them back? I think we have to look at what's keeping people here first and to, you know, I, I think that it's, there's a duality to that. I think that we one need to make sure that we, we stop the hemorrhaging by not losing the people that are hanging on by a cusp. And then I think that we have to go back and figure out why those people got to the point of being so burnt out. And, it, and what do we do systemically to change that? Because I don't feel comfortable asking somebody who got burnout and left to come back to a system that hasn't changed. You know, I have a really good friend that uh, has left and she's doing a lot of work around self-care and boundaries and she was a phenomenal uh, therapist and social worker for almost two decades and I don't want to ask her to come back because it's moral injury. The system hasn't changed until we can address caseload sizes and financial reimbursements and have adequate resources. It's a really unfair ask to say, hey, the system burnt you out to the point that you no longer felt safe or mentally well doing it. So I don't really want to ask those people to come back until we uh, make the changes first. I've mentioned in the past that my daughter-in-law's uh, therapist and she started a, with a community provider and had that experience and went into private practice and now she's going even deeper into screening her clients so that they don't impose this sort of you know uh, 
unbearable amount of stress on, on her, so she is doing cases that are easier to manage. And that's not a, I can't, you can't blame individuals for wanting to do that, but it's not gonna be healthy for our overall profession, right? That's right, and that, that article I referenced a few minutes ago, I actually touched on that point. It's like, you know, me five years ago wanted to demonize uh, the private uh, practice. I was like, you're dealing with the worried well at the expense of, there's people that are sicker out there that can't get care. Um, and it, there was this anger or frustration of how can you not do the social justice and work with the most burdened by the system. And then I had to realize like, these individuals are protecting themselves, you know, that they don't have the, the stamina or the desire to continue to work in a system that is, is so precariously built that it, it, it burns people out. So I had to realize that it's like, what your daughter did actually makes a lot of sense. Um, this isn't a system that's designed to keep uh, individuals in it and sustained. And it, and it wasn't, I, I want to be clear, it wasn't about money. It was just about self-protection, self-awareness, and wanting not to put herself under too much stress. So um, it's something that we have to figure out a way to address. I, I came to the same conclusion um, that you did, Ryan. And then also very grateful that my therapist sees the worry. Well, <laughs> you know, I would hate for her to turn her practice around. Um, because we do, I think at this point, especially after the pandemic, we all need some help. Um. That's right, and I think like, and even like that term, the word well that I use, like I've had to like do some searching because I don't really love that term because it's almost pejorative, like, well, you, you're undeserving of getting a therapist. We all like, you know, we don't talk about that way with like someone going to seek out physical right. care. It's like, oh, you want your annual physical? It's like, yeah, I want to be able to maintain my well-being. And so I think that it does go back into that, like, we've got to create a workforce to where everybody who wants to have a therapist has it, and it's not at the expense of those most uh, vulnerable in the system being the ones that aren't able to get that. And that is not about, you know, we, we pitted, the system has pitted therapist against therapist versus being able to look and say, well, the state, if you would up your, your reimbursement rates and reduce caseload sizes, people could create a sustainable career and be able to uh, not have to pick that I want to go into uh, a lesser, a slower pace or working with people with less, less complexities with issues so that I can sustain. I love that you're really tapping into all the macro issues around this. So what do you think policy-wise needs to happen in North Carolina around treating people who have mental illness and addiction, and how do we up the workforce in our state? Yeah, so uh, when I run for governor, I'll get my uh, 21 points on. <laughs> we need some 2024. 2024. Are you announcing here? <laughs> so I think uh, some of the things that I've seen that are really creative in different states, uh, Ohio has, um, they're likely going to be announcing that they're investing 85 million in, in um, workforce development and that would create uh, agencies being able to pay for uh, interns coming in. And, you know, as I talked with uh, NASW at the national level, it's like 
we do recognize that there are, if we want to deal with equity issues, that there are people who really need to have a paid internship. Potentially not every internship should be paid and it shouldn't be at the expense of the providers or the schools. Those entities don't have the money to do it. So if we really want to uh, say that we value mental health as a state, then show me your budget because that's where it's going to tell me if you really value it. So I think that that would be one of the pieces that I would look at. I would also look at, um, we have several people that have wanted to be in the profession and the um, ASWB exam that I referenced earlier has been a preclusion from them being able to enter it because they couldn't pass an exam that we've seen that has structural bias based into it. So do we need to statutorily change uh, to where people do not need to have an exam to be a therapist? Are there other ways of assessing someone's capabilities? Um, and I think that that would open up uh, a significant amount of people who have had the education but have not been able to be practicing a therapist. Teletherapy, I think, has done a really nice job. I think that we need to look at how do we expand like broadband issues to make sure that people in rural communities uh, actually can take advantage of it. Um, are we able to use federal funding to incentivize people to go into uh, rural communities? We've started to see some progress with uh, student, for, student loan forgiveness, but I think that's another big piece. When someone graduates uh, an MSW program with $150,000 of debt, that makes no sense, especially when you see that the starting wage is gonna take you know, a lifetime to be able to pay that debt down. So looking at programs, whether it's the 10-year public service loan forgiveness or the two years where you work in certain uh, underserved communities, but I think we've really got to expand those types of programmings. So I think, again, it goes back to this idea that there is not a technical solution. It is very much, there really needs to be a lot of different uh, ways to address this. So it's a, it's a partly, a, at least a pol political issue. Um, any way around um, navigating that political divide that we see? Well, I think that we have to uh, recognize that, you know, we don't make physical health a partisan issue. I don't think we need to make mental health a partisan issue or substance use. And I think that uh, demonizing whether someone identifies as red or blue or somewhere in the middle or not at all, I think that we can find common ground to start to, you know, when I was referencing Ohio, that is a highly uh, conservative state, and yet there's been significant inroads to pass uh, what some might call a progressive legislation. So I think that um, we can shape that narrative that this it doesn't have to be considered to be a progressive uh, talking point. Mental health and when people die by suicide and people are living on streets for addiction, those aren't progressive issues. Those are humanitarian issues that all of us should care about. Well said. Well, uh, awesome, awesome responses. Um, do you have any other thoughts on this topic that we might have missed? Anything else you want to say as, as, as kind of wrap this up? You know, I think one thing that we need to look at is when we talk about comorbidity, the age that that tends to happen is in this 18 to early mid-20s. Um, and that is solely because that's when a lot of mental illnesses start to become more pronounced. That is the trajectory of when 
uh, substance use that someone has been using it in a problematic way moves into being addicted. And so I think that when we look at these things, that uh, 18 has historically been categorized as someone is now an adult. Uh, but I think families need to recognize that these uh, youth are super vulnerable. I think, again, going back to legislation that, you know, do we need to allow for confidentiality and involvement in parents to look different when there are these complex mental health issues? And that may be viewed as kind of outlandish, but I think that when you see a 22-year-old with their first psychosis episode that also has substance use, then more than ever do they need their parent or other um, family members involved and current legislation keeps them not being involved. So I think those are things that we're also going to have to tackle if we really want to get ahead of uh, comorbid issues. That is such a fantastic point. And, yeah. and students, uh, young adults stay on parents' insurance till 26, so why wouldn't we try and help the family be able to know what's going on in a crisis. I love that point. That's why the king of innovation, Ryan. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. It's It's been a pleasure. It's really been fascinating to hear you speak about your experiences. Thank you so much. Of course. Amazing. That was fantastic. It really was. I really, I loved how he really um, was able to explain from a a large lens of what the issues are and what the challenges are in helping families. We really needed that perspective because we haven't had really had that perspective yet and he looks like he's going maybe he will be governor someday that would be awesome. I I failed to mention he was also president of the um, NASW North Carolina chapter Really. so he is someone who's really tapped into what's happening politically. The message is, in some ways, it's discouraging because, you know, we are up against big-time money problems, uh, lack of resolve and will to put money into mental health nationally, locally, everywhere, and he's on the front lines and, you know, he sounds like he knows what needs to be done, but it's not going to be easy. Yeah. No, I I mean, I think change is coming. but it's slow. I mean, it, it probably won't happen in, in my career um, where we'll see such a flip with mental health being fully funded. But I, I do think we're going to get there. I agree. I agree. I think probably be, for one, one reason is the, the ubiquitous nature of mental health problems. Eventually, everybody who is a politician who's in a, in a seat to make a decision is going to be affected by that if they haven't already. And when it becomes more and more prevalent, um, as, as it is, it's, it's getting to be worse and worse every mm-hmm. year. And um, mm-hmm. so that alone could be an impetus for us to get more funding into mental health. So, But, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed him as a guest. Uh, learned a lot, and hey, that's what this is all about, right? That's right. That's right. So. All right. Well, until next time. Until next time. See ya. Special thanks to our wonderful engineer, Michael Magnanti. Thank you to the Department of Sociology and Criminology and the School of Social Work for their incredible support. 
We love you guys. Thank you to all our listeners. And don't forget to check out our next episode. Bye now. Take care.